Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff is, is a guy named Sully. Sully is a Boston guy, of course, with a name like Sully. He's a Boston guy. Of course, he's this guest that we're going to talk to in a moment. Uh, so he is a sober guy. And he's an inspiring man. Uh, he's a humble man, which is I had to get a lot of this stuff out of him. I knew uh, he's got something that, that as a sober guy I want. So he was somebody who I looked at to have on this podcast because I want people to listen to this to understand how great a life of sobriety can be. And uh, I don't think there's any better example than my man, Sully. But first, Kevin Souza. Yo. Sully. What are we doing? What's up, my man? How you doing? Good, buddy. What's happening with you? Nothing much. I'm just, I just sat down. I opened up a Coke Zero. I'm in the studio right now. You can say hi to Allison. What up, Allison? <laughs> Sully, where's Murphy at right now? Dropkick Murphy is right next to me, keeping the toy away from his brother, Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> So the name, so I didn't know the other dog's name was, I got to meet folks. I got to meet, I got to meet <laughs> Murphy and Oscar the other night. So Sully, without giving away your address, what street was that? 10th. So 10th street. Uh, I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm walking back from dinner. I was in Hermosa with my brothers, um, my niece and my sister-in-law and out comes Sully of this like beautiful home. Um, and he's got two dogs with him, Oscar the Grouch and Murphy and Murphy. I mean, it already shows you're a good guy, a good alcoholic. Cause you took in a guy like, or, or I guess Murphy came back yeah. from daycare, a little screwed up, right? Um, he went to the vet in Las Vegas and he used to be really sweet with people. And now every now and then he can be a dick and he nips at people. So I have to just try to warn that. Now the bizarre part of the whole thing is dropkick Murphy nips at people Oscar the Grouch is great with people. <laughs> Oscar the Grouch is a dick to dogs, and Murphy is great with dogs. So it's like <laughs> you saw you saw the juggling act. I was trying to do. I'm like, yeah, you can pet this, and he'll bite. And then Patty was like, I want to pet him. I'm like, I don't know, he's gonna bite you. But yeah, ahead. Patty, my sister in law, she was. Everybody was getting in on the act, and you were trying to direct traffic. I don't care. If you, I I warned twice, and then I'm like, fuck it, you're an adult. If you want to try to pet him, go ahead, have at it. <laughs> I was with both your brothers last night. I didn't know if it was a Zoom or not. No, I, we do. I just do strictly audio. It keeps it, it keeps it basic, and I don't have to look at myself. Because okay. I get. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I'm just like that's enough of that. Oh, is the lighting right? Or no, I'm I'm good. It was strictly audio is way better. Oh, <laughs> uh, so you guys went to the you guys went to a meeting last night. Went to Roxbury. Now Me, that that is a your two brothers and music Nate a music Nate who's been on this podcast and so is Mike. Now that meeting is like Have we started. Yeah, we're we're starting, dude. 
Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, now that mean, I mean, I'll edit some stuff out, but like, yeah. Um, we can talk about Roxbury, right? I'm not going to talk about whatever we want. Yeah. Okay. Like that, that meeting is historic, right? Yeah. I think it's 75 years old. It's the oldest men's meeting west of the Mississippi. And it's in what part of uh, California? What part of Southern California for people that don't know? Uh, the rough street. I'm sorry. The rough streets of Beverly Hills. Okay. And my, my brother Michael said, uh, and everybody here knows he's sober, obviously. He said that uh, you go in there and it's almost like a roll call. And he said he was just sitting there. 30 minutes in, they called on him. He said the next thing he knew, he was up at a podium uh, sharing about his experience, strength, and hope. So the way Roxbury works is <clears throat> there's two guys that run a, it's a men's meeting. There's two men that were on a panel. And I was honored to run the panel a few years ago, uh, about six years ago, I did the panel and, uh, it's such old school tradition where if you're on the panel, you're required to be in a shirt and tie and a suit, right? So it's old school, AA, no bullshit, men's solution based. And when I was on the panel, you go through like a dinner and they say, okay, here's the structure of the meeting. And it, you call on you know the guys, if you go to Roxbury long enough and you're on the panel, you know the guys that if the meeting gets going a certain way, you know to call on somebody that will bring it back to very solution-based steps and help a drunk, right? Because sometimes, you know, meetings, they can just take Yeah, anybody can, I tell people, anybody can walk in there, let's not forget, right. you know, for the most yeah. part. You really can't get thrown out of AA. I've seen a lot of <laughs> shit, and no one's been ever thrown out of AA. I've seen fights in the parking lot. I've seen a lot of, you know, heated discussions, but it's like, yeah, man, figure it out and then sit down and stop being a jerk. So, but the, the thing about your brother is you're taught to call on newcomers and guys from out of town. Ah, uh, okay. And during the beginning, they ask for newcomers with less than 30 days stand up. And then one of the guys will write down the names. And then also, okay, anyone from out of town, brother stood up said his name and he was from philadelphia oh that's cool and when he got called on and he's up at the podium it was funny because he introduced himself and one of the guys in the back row yelled out short-haired kevin (laughs) 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 your brother (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah Uh, it was it was uh, awesome being out there and seeing those guys one of the things and uh we went to the the red hot chili peppers concert kevin got us my oldest brother got us 10th row and, you know, and, and I know you've been around this because it's like you can go anywhere where you're spiritu- when you're spiritually fit. Dude, I, I can't believe, like, you know, I've been sober for a little more than 10 years. I never thought that I would be able to be at a concert like that. I mean, we were into every single song, you know, dancing, yeah. having fun, no judgment, comfortable in our own skin. And yeah. I, I was thinking, I was talking to another alcoholic about it, and I was – talking about a newcomer who loves to listen to live music. And I was like, I hope this newcomer knows that, you know, he will be able to go out and be anywhere, you know, uh, singleness of purpose. Right. And, and have a great time and feel comfortable in his own skin. I, for me, that was, for me, that stood in the way of me getting sober for a long time. That bullshit. How long Pete, did it take you to get comfortable to do everything you just said that you did at the concert? Uh, it took me a little bit. I think what I, when, when I was a year and a half sober, I can remember being with some of my friends that I grew up with 
and honestly, I was crushing meetings, you know, and uh, yeah. so I was really feeling it. And I, I, I remember thinking, wow, I was around guys, some were drinking. I think a guy might have been smoking weed, and I was having a great time. And I was in the moment. And I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but and then I'd never been to, you know, it kind of just happens, right? So like I was just there. I yep. was like, oh my gosh, this is like, and this is this is the last uh, on Sunday. I was like, this is unbelievable. How long did it take you to figure out, like, <clears throat> so you're in, you're in Texas. Yeah. I haven't been to any meetings in Texas. When I travel, I always make sure I go to meetings. I was taught when I was new that, and I used to say to guys, well, how do you go and when you go into different cities or different countries, do you go to meetings? And Frank M. up in the Valley, this guy from Belfast, used to always say to me, yeah, Sully, I go to meetings. And I looked at him and he goes, I sure as shit drank when I traveled. Why wouldn't I go to meetings when I travel? And I was like, that was like a big eye opener for me. I don't know about you, Pete. When I was new, I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. I'm, I'm out in LA. I'm living at my sister's house. I'm 35 years old. I'm hanging out with guys on Friday nights. I was just like, the routine was, Go to a men's stack. I went to a lot of meetings myself. I crushed meetings too. I, I found, I got, I decided, so I don't know if you want me to get into my story. Yeah, 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 just, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And, and then I'll, 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 I'll take you places I want to go. But yeah, keep going. So my sobriety date's March 11, 2009. And, um, you know, I grew up outside of Boston. I'm sure the accent comes through pretty thick. <laughs> um, you know, a good family. Parents got separated and divorced when I was really young. I was about six. Was there alcoholism in the family? Yeah, my dad was finally got sober in 88. And being the youngest of five with four older sisters, I didn't really know much about my dad's drinking. It was, you know, I was, I was a kid. I was real young. And then next thing you know, it was, you know, parents get divorced and it's every other weekend. And sometimes weekends wouldn't happen with my dad and, so I just, you know, that's, that's how I, I thought that was normal, right? I didn't know anything different. And then my dad got sober in August 18th, 1988. And, you know, then my dad never left. Like, my dad was always there. He had a car phone. So, like, anytime I wanted to get in touch with my dad, he was available, right? It's not like it is now where you can just text anybody and they'll pick up or they'll get back to you in a couple of hours, if not a couple of minutes. And I just, I just remember that as, you know, Trying to think back of all my memories of my dad. My dad died sober. It's it's pretty wild now that I'm in recovery and I see the things that I go through now that my dad used to do, but I had no idea. Right? He, he used to try to help this guy who was a great mechanic on the weekends. My dad used to love going to auctions and buying cars, and he would charge the Walter Sullivan fee. It would be five hundred dollars. So if you wanted a car, my dad would go get you a car, and he paid my dad five hundred bucks. Well, but by the way, what was his day job? Because he's rolling around with a car phone in 1988, <laughs> like Sonny Crockett. <laughs> so, <laughs> you're, you're a sports guy, right? I imagine. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the Sullivans of the Patriots back way back when? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was my family. Wow. So my grandfather in 1959 um, was awarded the AFL franchise for the Boston Massachusetts football team, which ended up becoming the Boston Patriots. Wow. I know it's like it, 
you've known a little bit about me and the circle I run with now. It's like I grew up around pro sports my whole life, so that's why I'm very comfortable in, you know, in places that I've been in my life. It's like, yeah, it's just like I'm a 14-year-old kid in the Patriots locker room or being a ball boy and, you know, thinking, what do you mean you didn't travel to Philadelphia on the Patriots team playing? Not every 14-year-old does that? What do you mean? So that's, like, it's such a weird scenario when I look back on my life. Yeah. Right? So... You're blowing but, my mind you know, right now. When did when did the Sullivan <laughs> when did the Sullivans so they sold the team to Victor Kayam? Am I right right about that? Well, you do know your sport. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, and uh, yeah. So because I remember Victor Kayam was he was kind of a, 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 a shithead, but the Sullivan yeah. everybody loved everyone the Sullivan crazy. family, right? Yeah, everyone loved. So the face was Billy, right? Uh huh. Billy Sullivan was the face, and. You know, it's funny, people that are going to be listening to this, they're like, oh, the Patriots have been great. It's like, no, 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 the Patriots were trash. (laughs) There was a reason why they got Drew Bledsoe, right? They had the shittiest season before, and they had the number one overall pick. And only when Bledsoe came in, I mean, the Patriots had the one run in 88. Uh I got to go to the Super Bowl when Chicago. They got crushed by the Bears, yeah. Yeah, 46 to 10. Like, that was me at 13 years old. Wow. So, just different things like that, but Kayim then sold it to Orthwine Bush or Bush Orthwine, and he was going to take the team to St. Louis. And then a guy named Robert Kraft stepped in, and and you know the rest is history. And thank God for Robert Kraft. But you know, that's amazing. About, so you you're growing up with access to stuff. Yep, yep, yep. Like there was a picture in my my uh, di- my family dining room. It was Mike Haynes, his wife, and my mom and dad back in the day, and. Mike Haynes is in the Hall of Fame. He, he was originally a Patriot. Uh, one of the worst trades the Patriots made, trading him to the Raiders. Not a great trade. Nor Jim Plunkett. They had a couple yeah. of them, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, so you're growing up. Um, and and do you remember your dad running the streets at all? Like before 1988? No. I mean, like he'd be at my Little League games, but he, you know, he was in sales. So the, the long one did after the family was getting out of, like he was on the board of directors for the Patriots. And then as, as things were going down and he had to find a different career path to go on. He, my, my family started with printing, like they own print companies. Uh-huh. They own uh, a print and they printed all the tracks for all the, all the programs for the tracks on the East coast, which they, he was responsible for the track in Philly. Okay. And he became very close with the Rooney family. Because like we're talking racetracks. Track. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the racing Dogs, forums horses. and stuff. Yeah. 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 Like that was, so my dad was the youngest of nine with five brothers and each brother was responsible for a certain part of the country. And my dad's was the East coast. And he spent a lot of time in Philadelphia and became very tight with the Roonies and, you know, the Roonies of Pittsburgh steal of fame sure. and they owned a ton of tracks. And, you know, my godfather is one of the Roonies. That's how close my dad, and he were, and then my dad was one of Pat Rooney's sons, Tommy, his godfather. And it's funny because Tommy grew up with your brother Kevin. It's yeah, like yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. What's in like like when St. Thomas <laughs> outside of Philly, and so and this just shows too. By the way, we can go down a whole another rabbit hole, but like it's just that was fraternal, right? Like the guys who owned NFL teams yeah. back then. I mean, I guess it still yep. is, but you guys were a part of that. Um, yep. We'll get back to this conversation in a second, but right now, a word from our sponsors. 
Real quick show note, this is long overdue. If anybody out there has a question about sobriety, go ahead and email the podcast. Email me. You can contact Pete by sending an email to the payoff at roguemedianetwork.com. And if you have a question that I can't answer, I'll refer it to somebody that can, and we'll get back to you uh, to the best of our ability. I'm not an expert, but I know experts, so we can help you out that way. Also, another thing I wanted to share with you guys, the best part about early sobriety for me was when I found a home uh, and I realized there were other people just like me. Heather's Way is a charitable organization that helps individuals maintain sobriety and find the feeling of home during their recovery journey. They have a golf tournament coming up on August 29th. If you want to get involved, go to heathersway.org, heathersway.org, and the golf tournament information, all of it's right there. I'm sure my man Mike Barton Jr. will be racing to the website right now. The golf tourney will be outside Philly, and it's going to be awesome. And obviously, they're drumming up money for an incredible cause. So back back to your story. So your dad is is driving around and he's, 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 you're always able to get in touch with him and he's showing up. So you knew, you kind of saw, yeah. uh, maybe yeah. looking back retrospectively, it made sense to you, but so he yep. was 12 step AA sober and he was a, yep. a great guy. He didn't go to meetings, but him and what a guy that we call uncle Mike, it's not technically my uncle. He also is sober and the two of them would have dinner six nights a week. Like, so I joke around him like, yeah, they had their own, it only takes two to have a meeting. Yeah. Right. But he, he didn't, he had his own way in, <clears throat> of staying sober. And it's something that, you know, with what I do for work now, it's, you know, it doesn't always have to be 12 based solution. Yeah. Right. My, mine is my foundation is 12 steps and, you know, other people that, you know, they get really heavy into the church or they get really heavy into different spiritual programs or refuge recovery. Like there's a whole path of ways to stay sober day at a time that, not one shoe fits every foot, right? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I started this podcast so people could see, you know, there's no like one way to do it. There's it, you, you look like just we're here to like talk to you or, or for, for people to drop in on just listening about p- other stories of sobriety and guys like you who make it look a real attractive, you know. Thank God this isn't a Zoom. <laughs> All right. So, also, so, by the way, before we get too far out, you had two of my very close friends on your podcast. All right, go ahead. Ryan Leaf. Yeah, Leaf. Uh, he and was Dan incredible. O- and who? And who else? And Dan O'Toole. Uh, uh, that, so that that gives people uh, an insight into the into the circles you you, you work in and 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 run in. Uh, and I know that you've. <laughs> You've you've kind of helped. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you've been there for Ryan on a sobriety level too. Yes, Ryan and I are extremely. I met Ryan at a, at a meeting, and I know I actually it's funny because he and I were texting today. He's moving, and uh, he's going to be back in LA next week. And I told him, I said, "Hey, I'm going to be on Pete Suze's podcast. Would it be okay if I mentioned that we're friends?" And he just responded, "Of course." And I said the same thing to Dan O'Toole, and Dan's like. Buddy, we're brothers. So, you know, I always <laughs> want to make sure before I use somebody's name yeah. that I get their permission, right? I've been in way too many scenarios that I've seen people do it and it doesn't go over well. And it's something that I've learned years ago that I won't blow anybody's anonymity unless I have their their proof to be like, yeah, man, don't worry about it, right? So, Well, and especially yeah, for Ryan, you, that's that's got to be like, that probably pops up a lot. Um, yeah, it, it does. Yeah. 
And a lot of times, like if I, sometimes I just don't feel like getting into it. And they're uh. like, well, how do you know so-and-so? I'm like, ah, we just, you know, we just have a lot of mutual friends. It's an easy out that I've learned over the years. Oh, we just have a lot of mutual friends. And that's something you learn getting comfortable in your own skin. Like you don't have to explain everything to everybody, you know? Um, no, I do not. Yeah. No, I mean, I, uh, uh, and I know we go to the same coffee shop. That's does just fucking fine. You know, <laughs> really it does. And, and, but, but you know, I, I, and if I'm not spiritually fit tomorrow, I might feel like I got to explain it to somebody, but today I'm feeling yep. okay. So I, yep. you know, the truth is, is just fine. Yep. The truth is, is I let them in as much as I want to let somebody in. Yeah. So, so I'm back to Ryan. I met him at a meeting in the Pacific Palisades, just talking to a friend of mine, an old timer. And he said, Sully, I have someone I want you to meet. I'm like, okay. And all of a sudden Ryan comes walking in and he's like, hi, I'm Ryan. I'm like, Hey man, I'm Sully. <laughs> and we just started talking. And, uh, you know, one thing that I want to make sure that people understand and the circles that I run in, I really don't care what people do or did for a living as long as they're not assholes. You know, Ryan has an amazing, powerful story. And I've known him for seven years now. He just celebrated 10 not too long in April. Okay. And, you know, it's just like, yeah, the guys that I hang with, whether they're in the program or not, they just happen to be really good in certain aspects of their life, right? Like watching your brother play music always brings me joy. Every time Kevin tells me he's doing a show, I'm there. And to see him up there and to see the way that he brings joy to so many people with his gift. Yeah. I always love watching that. Right. And, you know, the love I have for your brother, Kevin, it, you know, Pete, it changed the whole trajectory of my life. Yeah. I, you, I, heard, I heard you mention that on a meeting and I, and I had no idea because, you know, Kev's not going to tell me that, uh, you know, it yeah. takes, that's kind of guy he is. So it takes, it takes you telling me that, um, and and it's it's a, it's it's pretty amazing, and that and that that's part of your your LA story, right? Um, we go. Yeah, I was I I had moved. I had a year and a half. I lived in the valley, and then I moved down to the South Bay in October of 2010. And what I was taught when I was new in sobriety is get to meetings and get your phone, get phone numbers, get there early, stick your hand out and try to be of help or service for somebody. And I started going to this 11 o'clock meeting and there was a guy in there with the Phillies hat. I'm like, all right, he's from the East coast. So there's that connection. Cause I don't care what anybody says. People that grew up on the West coast and people that grew up on the East coast, completely different. <laughs> you can't people on people on the East coast can be very direct with each other without really offending and hurting someone's feelings. Yeah. And I just started talking to Kevin and he was talking about something that he was going through. And I'm like, Hey man, here's my phone number. Let's talk tomorrow. And he and I, me and your brother, Kevin just started talking a lot. And then we started going and doing stuff together and then just hanging. And that's, I think when he started doing the keep Hermosa Hermosa, I literally would just see him with a shitty little pitch pop-up tent yeah. on the beach. He was trying to stop, but he did. I mean, successfully with the help of a lot of other people, um, stopping fracking in, in Hermosa beach. The way he was able to rally this small beach community, that's a one square mile and to take down big oil <laughs> bananas. But that's what type of leader your brother Kevin is. And, you know, he's got a great head on his shoulders. He's got a lot of love to give. And, you know, so he and I would just, we just became friends 
And then I was going through a tough time emotionally with a breakup. And I had my core group of meetings here in Redondo Beach, Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach. And Kevin's like, hey, I want you to get in the car and go to Beverly Hills. And for people that don't know L.A., it takes them, traffic sucks in L.A. Everywhere you go, once you leave your little bubble, takes an hour. No yeah. matter what, it takes an hour. And, you know, one thing that I, was, I always say is the four most important words of my sobriety are get in the car. Right. And when I got in the car, I was either going to a meeting or I was going to dinner or I was going to both. And that was drilled into me early, early on. You weren't sitting at home alone, right? Or or whatever, isolating. Yeah, that's great. And so your brother hit me with get in the car and I'm like, fuck you, dude. (laughs) And he goes, no, you got to listen to your own words. And I was like, all right. So I, so I did. And then I had an hour car ride uninterrupted with your brother. Right. And then I really started to get to know your brother. There's only so many, hey, how's it going, conversations you can have with somebody for an hour. Yeah, long and car rides can be special. Said, the best. It reminded, it reminded me, Pete, of when I was a kid and my dad be like, get in the car, come on. And I knew I was in trouble, right? So I'd be like, oh, get to sit in the car. And he'd take me into, he'd take me into Boston, which is a 45-minute car ride. So I knew we would have a great dinner, but I had to like listen and, but I look back on it now that I'm older. I'm like, man, those car rides were so important in my life because it was life lessons that my dad was trying to teach me. So I say that your brother changed the trajectory of my life because now I really look forward to going to Roxbury, that meeting that we all went to last night. And I started getting to know different guys from L.A. And this was 10, and 12 years getting, ago you guys were. Yeah. I mean, you guys were both in early, in early sobriety. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Your brother was going to school. He was like doing everything that he's accomplished now. He was doing back then. Yeah. And I became a regular at Roxbury. And I uh, tie this whole conversation back. I had the honor of being on the panel, sitting in front in a suit. And there was a newcomer that stood up and he got called on and he was from out of town and he had five days. And that guy's name is Nate T. And Nate P shared about something in his story that not many people can identify with. And he and I identified on that level. And he happened to be a professional athlete. And I texted the guys in the back row, hey, make sure he doesn't leave early. Because this specific thing that Nate T was going through in his life is something that I still go through in my life. And I wanted to let him know with five days sober that he didn't have to drink a use over because I understood that pain. And I understand the disappointment in the hurt, frustration. So he and I bonded on that. Nate asked me to sponsor him, and he's, he's the one that took my life into a different career. That's how I really started doing what I do for a living, was I was dragged around with Nate T. And what do you do for that, people that don't know? What, what do you do for a living? How would you describe it? Because um, it's, it's unique. Um, well, I like to have fun with it, Pete. So... For the people that are, I'm 48, so the, for the people that are in that age bracket, I tell and ask the question, have you ever seen the movie? And I'll ask you, Pete, have you ever seen the movie Pulp Fiction? Uh-huh. I'm the wolf, right? <laughs> or Mr. Wolf, Harvey Keitel. That's it, I, I'm, I'm the wolf, I saw problems. We'll get back to this conversation in a second, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Did you know you could be putting oil and chemicals in your coffee? 
I love coffee creamer, but I don't think I've ever turned the bottle around to actually see what's inside. When I did, I found out many of my favorite creamers contain ingredients I would never intentionally add to my coffee cup, like canola oil, dipotassium phosphate, ew, and artificial flavors. Laird Superfood all started when big wave surfer Laird Hamilton needed morning fuel that could allow him to spend the entire day chasing the ultimate wave. He couldn't find anything in the market that met his ingredient standards, so made himself the ultimate plant-based creamer. Laird Superfood started and launched its first product, Original Superfood Creamer, in 2015. Laird Superfoods contain no artificial flavors, colors, or additives, and no sugars from highly refined corn syrup. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel in to your routine. All Laird products are also made of all natural whole food ingredients and they are crafted from the highest quality all natural real food ingredients. Are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code BOO at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. I'm your puzzle-loving pal and I'm going to tell you about my latest obsession, Wongo Puzzles. These things are the real deal, folks. They're high quality, handcrafted, and perfect for anyone who loves a good challenge but doesn't want to dedicate their entire kitchen table to puzzles for a week. Trust me, I've been there. (laughs) I might still be there. But I got one of these actually for Christmas. I loved it. I did it, and I was so proud of myself. And they have all these cool designs, and you need to go to wongopuzzles.com and use our discount, BHH. You get 10% off, and I really want to know if you'll order one of these puzzles. How would you think about it? Because it's so fun, and I need to order like five. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Souza. I love smoothies, but I don't love smoothie bar prices. With my BlendJet 2 Portable Blender, I can make smoothie bar quality beverages for a fraction of the price. BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita at the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. It lasts for 15-plus blends and recharges quickly with a USB-C. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap, and you're good to go. With over 30-plus colors and patterns to choose from, there's a BlendJet 2 to complement just about any style. I like the urban camo print myself. So what are you waiting for? Go to BlendJet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code PETE12. That way you'll get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use the code PETE12. Remember, you get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Cure hydration. If you are obsessed with your hydration like I am, this may be something good for you. This is something that is so easy Forget about the Gatorade, that just dehydrates you even more. And if you don't like the taste of coconut water, try Cure Hydration. You can go to my offer link. It is zen, Z-E-N dot A-I slash B-H-H 20. This is vegan. It's no added sugars. It's just a little packet you could put in your water. Or if you're really smart during happy hour, you could put it into your Tito's. It is just as effective as an IV drip. 
And it's if you don't not like the taste of water, it's not as boring as water, not as sugary as the sports drink. And if you're an athlete, it'll give you the best performance. Or if you just get brain frog or headaches because you do not stay hydrated. Brain frog? Brain fog. (laughs) The solution is cure hydration. So go to that link, enter the code. You can go to my offer link. It is zen, Z-E-N dot A-I slash B-H-H 20. Cure hydration. Oh, the other one is if people don't, as I say, have you ever seen the TV series Ray Donovan? And more people say yes. And I say, well, that's what I'm going to say. And it gets people to laugh because I'm a sober coach with pro athletes, CEOs, and professional coaches. And I keep it light because, you know, the world that, that I run in and the conversations I have early on aren't fun conversations. It's hey, Sully, I was told to call you, my dad can't stop drinking. Or, hey, Sully, I was told to call you, my husband husband can't stop shooting heroin or can't stop snorting cocaine or he won't stop popping pills. Or, hey, Sully, I was told to call you, I'm really worried about my brother. He's not in a good place. He has a drinking problem. He's, he, we don't know where he is. Like Those are the conversations that I take on a daily basis. And if I don't have to get into that conversation, like you and I were talking about Pete, if I don't want to let people in on that world, I don't, I just say, yeah, have you ever seen Pulp Fiction? I'm the wolf. And then they look at me and I'm like, yeah, that's what I do for <laughs> yeah, I could no no wonder you and my brother get along so well. You come on re- renegades, right? Rolling around town dressed in black, keeping people well, guessing. Well, there was there was a, there was a moment that I want to tell you about and I was actually it was actually my trip in Philly when I met you. Yeah, by the way, and, which you showed up to my father's memorial in October of last year, which was just the kind of it speaks to the kind of guy you are. It was such an honor to be able to be back there at that time and to show up for your brother. I tell you, I'll say multiple times on this podcast, I absolutely love your brother, Kevin. And I was in Philly and he told me that the service for your dad was going to be at Villanova. So I jumped in an Uber and I got to meet the family. And then we had the uh, the mercy meal after, and I got to see the laughter and the, the Sousa brothers together and, you know, meet some beautiful other people and, your extended family. And while I was on that trip, I was there to see my buddy and we, me and another guy invited one of the, one of the, one of my buddies, he played for the flyers. I'm trying to, I don't know why I'm trying to like tip to a He played for yeah. the flyers. And I met one of his teammates, dads and the dad invited me to dinner before the game at the, uh, is it Wells Fargo center? Yeah, I think yeah, it's called. yeah. So they have this, restaurant in there so i went to dinner with this guy and his friend and i was in the you know i was in a a patagonia and a t-shirt and the reason why i say that is because so for the people that don't know i'm sleeved up with hand (laughs) tap so i'm six two and it's a little interesting when i walk into rooms i'm not saying that to brag but i'm trying to paint this picture of this story and this guy next to me says sully can i ask you a question i'm like yeah of course and i go just be prepared I don't know what you're going to ask, but I'm going to answer it. And he goes, okay. And he goes, you have a lot of tattoos. And I went, holy shit, you are very observant. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. What do you do for a living that you can have 
all those tattoos. And I was like, that's your question? And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, well, and then I answer it the way I just walked you through it. And the guy was like, I was trying to figure out what you do for a living because not many people can have a quote unquote professional job with hand tattoos. <laughs> it's a good point. Yeah. Right. It's, it's a different time. Like tattoos are very acceptable now, but hand tats are a different level. And once I knew that I was going to work in recovery, I was like, I'm getting my hands blasted. <laughs> I really enjoy, I really enjoy body art. It's another addiction that I picked up in my sobriety. So and, I, I and, so we got to get back to, uh, to your youth because this is, by the way, my mind is, is getting blown right now. Cause I'm, I'm, I love learning about people. Your story, I knew it was interesting and, it's all I had it cracked up to be, which is rare because um, you know how expectations go. So, yeah, right. So you, you, you grow up, your dad gets sober, you're living in, in the Boston area. Then, then what yeah. happens to your life? And what, what happens to you when you start to drink a lot? How, how, how does Sully change? Well, being the youngest of five, I never, like my sisters wore down my mom, right? So... And it's a different time back in the early nineties where my mother would have, I would, I was the house where we could have the high school party at because my mother could keep an eye on me and my friends. Mm -hmm. And the rule was turning your car keys to my mother when you came in the house, right? There was no Uber. There was no cell phones. It was, you're here. We're keeping an eye on you. So it was a little different in my life because we always had like my sisters would buy for us. It was kind of a controlled environment. I played sport. I played football in high school. I had a lot of fun doing it. And it was just kind of what all my friends were doing. There was never any peer pressure because it was just, you know, I watched my sister and all their friends have parties. And, you know, to me, it was just the next thing to do. And then I went, to, I did a post-grad year in Maine because I blew up my knee and all the scholarships were taken away. Uh -huh. So now I'm in the middle of nowhere, Maine. Where'd you go? Football. Where'd you go to Maine? What, what, uh, MCI. MCI yeah. Okay. Okay. There are a lot of great athletes going there. The guy that lived next door to me was Katino Mobley. Cat and I are still close. So wow. Bananas. Okay. Yeah. Bananas when you look back on life. And yeah. So then I'm in Maine and we would bring booze up from my mother's house. And, you know, you had study halls every night. So my grades got better. My SATs got better. And then I blew my knee out again playing football. And then I'm like, all right, that's it. So. I ended up doing one semester in California and uh, Whittier College hated it because I thought that was L.A. and it's not. And I had sisters that live in California. And then I went back home, did a semester at uh, UMass Lowell. Yeah. And then at, after U Lowell, one of my best friends was going to school in Boca Raton, Florida. And he mailed me up a one side of a piece of an application <laughs> to go to school at Uni uh, Lynn University in Boca Raton, Florida. And that's where I ended up going to college and getting and my degree. What was the drinking like when you're down in, in all this time? All the, what's the progression like? And is, is, is there drugs involved? No drugs. It was, it's interesting because, you know, I'm in Boca Raton with a bunch of rich kids. And, you know, there was drugs everywhere. I just, my father always warned me, don't do cocaine. Okay. That was his big thing. Don't do cocaine. Don't do pills. Don't do cocaine. If you want to smoke weed, fine, but don't do coke. 
So I never did it. That was like my thing. And then I would. By the way, think, by the way, real quick, there's there's stories about the Patriots, right? Like the late '80s Patriots about like oh, yeah. major after cocaine problems, right? Right after the Super Bowl, that story dropped. Yeah, and it was a huge deal. Yeah, yeah, big deal. Well, that was also the '80s with you know drug use is way different yeah. then. Everybody was doing coke back in the '80s and early '90s. Yeah, so, so just, you know that that's that that always ahead. like but that your connection to that is another thing I w- I just wanted to touch on. But so your dad says don't do drugs. You're in Florida. You're you're yeah. not doing drugs, but you're drinking a lot. Yeah, I mean it was the bars were open till five. There was like nickel draft night at one place, and I remember it was like a running joke when I would go to the cafeteria because my DTs were so bad the next day that I would have to keep my face over my plate just so I could eat without all the eggs shaking off my fork. But it was just like a running joke at the time. It's like, ah, I don't, I'm 20 years old. Yeah. Right. I wasn't nearly ready to get sober. And then, you know, I just, you know, just kept going. I, I left, I graduated in call in Boca. Then I took a job at a TV station in West Palm beach. And it was amazing because I worked in sports and I worked in news and my shift was um, three to eleven thirty, and it was all guys. We were all the same age, early twenties. What did you do at the TV station? I was a sports producer back in the day. Wow. Okay. Yep. So I got to cover Dan Marino near the end of his career. Um, I got to be down there when the Marlins won the first World Series in '97 when they beat the Indians. Was there a lot of drinking uh-huh. going on with guys you worked with? Like, was it work hard, play hard? Yeah, hundred percent. All of us did the same thing. We just—it was a running joke the next day, like who was the most hungover. Yeah, but again, it was—it was still fun, Pete. Right? It was still, you know, we're just having a good time. It, I didn't have to worry about missing work because I didn't have to get up till two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. So where did where you know, did it start to, to become it. a problem? Um, when I moved back to South Boston, got married, continued the drinking and partying and started having kids and making promises that I'll get up with the kids in the next morning and then not. And when it got really bad is when I was introduced to Oxycontin. And, uh, you know, I used to, as soon as I was introduced to Oxycontin, that was, that was it. What year was that? My father had passed. So after 06, my, my dad died sober in 06. So I would say maybe 07. What do you remember the first time you took an oxy, or like how that came about? Of course, I remember getting one because I used to I used to take Percocets and pop them like Tic Tacs when I would go out. Yeah, right. And I didn't like Vicodin because Vicodin didn't do anything, and Percocets were very perks were easy to get a get a hold of, and and um, I got an oxy, and I remember I was about to take it, and my buddy's like, "Whoa, whoa what are you doing?" I'm like, "I don't know. You just gave me this pill." Typical. Elky, I didn't even think I was just going to take it. Yeah. He goes, no, 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 you got to take the coating off first. And then after you take the coating off, you got to chop it up, dummy. He's like, hell, you can't take a whole 80. So that's how I started. I peeled the coating off and then I would chop it in fours. And, you know, then I remember I had it and I'd wake up the next day. I'm like, oh, my body doesn't feel right. And then I would just take them to watch the Red Sox game. And then it just got horrible and I couldn't, you know, I would have a stack of t-shirts next to the bed and be sweating through t-shirts and 
try to take it and, you know, in the middle of the night, try to save one for the morning, but I couldn't get to the morning. So I take it in the middle of the night just so I could somewhat wake up. And then my body's screaming for it. And bones are hurting and sweating and all the fun stuff of when your body detoxes off. Oxycontin. Yeah. How are you scoring yeah. all the time? Like, how are you able to get it? I had a corporate, I was doing sales at the time and I had a corporate credit card. And I would go to friends and own restaurants. And I would say, hey, do me a favor. Hit this credit card for $1,100. I'll expense it for a dinner. And then you keep 100 and give me 1000 And that's how I was doing it. Wow. And then I was ripping through finances. And there's a lot of stuff I really can't get too, too deep in. Sure. For other, other purposes. But, uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't fun. It was any means necessary to get an oxy in my system just so I could feel how I feel every day being sober since March 11th, 09. Yeah. Just so I can get up and function. So it's take bananas. To how did we get to March 11th, 09? What's the bottom? Bottom was, so I was married, four kids. Um, I had a nice, quiet knock on the door with a mag light from Boston police telling me to leave my condo. I had 20 minutes to leave my condo. And uh, that was on February 11th of 09. And I was told, don't come back to the premises for two weeks. So I uh, went up to my mother's house. She didn't know what was going on. They, no one knew, could figure out what was going on. It just wasn't right. Like I, I had inter an intervention done in 08 by my whole family. And then I went to a, a nice rehab in Williamsburg, Virginia. Sure. And I learned a lot at Williamsburg Place. It's where Brigham and Mary is. Yep. I wasn't ready. I was very angry. Um, you know, I've been part of interventions, and they can go three ways. Great, which means the person gets in and hugs their loved ones and goes to treatment. It can go okay where they go reluctantly, and it can go terribly where the person that's getting intervened on tell everyone to go fuck themselves and walks out. Like Christopher and on I The Sopranos. Was, yeah. Yeah. And I was close between horrible and okay. I ended up getting on the plane and going, but it wasn't good during that whole time. So can you like say why the walking. police were at, at, at your door? Um, my children's mom put a two-week restraining order on me. Okay. This is the stuff that I have to be careful talking sure. about because it's, it's back in court. Um. Yeah, so she put a two-week restraining order on me, and then I went to my mother's house. My mother um, couldn't figure out what was going on. I would take a friend's car to go get the oxys, be back at my mother's house. Showed up in South Boston court. For those of you that are listening, if you ever watch Goodwill Hunting, that's the courtroom that I would walk into. Pretty much looks the exact same. Um, shitty on the inside, even worse feeling as me walking through those doors and then on february 25th of 09 i was told that i can't see my kids for one year and uh remember i was walking in the streets of selfie with a borrowed suit from a friend of mine an overcoat that wasn't mine and now there i am 35 years old with nowhere to go right i can't go back home can't see 
what was my wife at the time. I can't see my kids that were seven, five, three, and nine months at the time. And went to a payphone, called my mother, told her I was going to take the train to go back to her house in Lowell. And she said, if you, um, if you show up at this house, I'm going to, I'm going to call the cops and have you arrested. And, uh, <laughs> I remember just like everything that I said to my mom, what are you doing to your baby son? What are you doing to your baby? I have nowhere to go. Don't you know what happened to me? Yeah. But don't you understand But you don't get it? Like, I need to come home. Like, I hit her with every, thank God for the amends process, but I hit her with every horrible sentence, adjective, adverb, noun. And she said, you have a place to go. And she sent me to the uh, homeless shelter in downtown Boston. And uh, I remember I made a phone call to a buddy of mine who ran hotels down in South Florida. And he put me up at a courtyard Marriott in Cambridge for a week. And then um, my brother-in-law put me in a different courtyard Marriott on the South Boston Dorchester line. And uh, I remember that I was just sitting in these two hotels by myself alone, had a cell phone, just calling my Boston sponsor at the time that never quit on me. And he, um, he was just like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. And he said, well, you really don't have many options because you have no job, you have no insurance and you have no money. He's like, here's the list of places that you should call and hopefully they'll have a bed for you. And I, I called all those places, Pete, and on March 9th, um, a place outside of Boston called and said they had a bed and they wanted to know if I could be there the next morning. Wow. And I called the next morning and they said the bed was still available. If I could get there at nine, I said, I can't get there at nine. I'm in the city and it would have taken me 45 minutes to get there. And one more time I had to call my mom and my mom and my sister Helen came and picked me up and my two fucking trash bags at 35 years old and dropped me off at this other state run shelter. And, you know, they detoxed me for five days and then I lived in a, a state-run old tuberculosis hospital for 35 days with 59 other guys, 60 guys, including myself. And, you know, that's where, that's where this journey started, man. You just took me right the fuck back there, Pete. So you, that's, it's amazing. The story is and the way you articulate it. Um, it comes through pretty damn clear. Uh, so you, you, you get to this, ha- this institution, 59 other yeah. dudes, what start? What yeah. start? What starts to happen there? I mean, does is that kind of solution based? Or are you just surviving there, no. getting off oh, drugs? Fuck no, there's no solution there. <laughs> the, the, I remember, I've never been so scared in my life. Right? I told you, I'm six two, and I remember walking in up the steps, and there was a there was a kid there, Johnny C, in you know, neck tattoo, and just the 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 way he looked at me just put fear in my eyes. And when I got to the top of the step, he stuck his hand out and he said, Hi, I'm Johnny. Welcome. And I was like, Oh, thank you. My name is Sully. And, you know, then they did the intake and it was me and eight, seven guys. So it was eight guys in a room and 
twin beds and they fed us breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you got up in the morning and you had to go down and do breakfast. Or if you didn't want to eat, you had to check in for count. And then they would have a house meeting in the morning and then they would have a house meeting at 10 and then you would have lunch and then you would have back to your room for census. And then they would have a night meeting come in with, um, that was census. What is that? Just like a bed check? Yeah. Go okay. to your room and they do count at two thirty yeah. in the afternoon. Okay. okay. So here's the premise of this place. If you walked off, you're gone for 30 days. You can't okay. come back. Okay. And, and the place was for people like myself who had nowhere else to go. The place was for people that were waiting to go into a program in a bed at another structured program or people there waiting with suspended sentences. This is the last stop on the bus we're talking about. This was, bro, this was, this was as, as much of a shelter as you can kind of get that, you know, if you, the only thing you couldn't do was leave. You could leave. Let me rephrase that. You could leave, but you couldn't get back in. And they would, they would, they would and there were people getting high in there. And I had to keep away from like, it was, it was such a test of, for me, like, okay, how fucking bad do I want my life to get? You're going to get high in a shelter now. And then if they give you a urine and you piss dirty, you're out. Like, there's no questions asked. You're out. And I was just like, I remember, thank God they had a wall of pay phones. And I remember, you know, I'd call, I would call my one sister, Helen. And then I would call my Boston sponsor, Gunny. And Gunny, God bless Gunny. He would always tell me, Sully, this is only temporary. Yeah. As shitty as this is, and I know it's shitty, it's only temporary. And he kept sticking that into my head. And then finally he said to me, Sully, stay off the payphones. Stop calling people. Just stay in there, do your time, wait for a bed to open up, and don't get high. That's all he kept saying to me. And I remember, like, man, just, it was, he was right, stay off the payphones, because nothing good was coming from phone calls. Yeah, yeah. And at that point in time, you're sur- all, most of your relationships, right, are... Broken, right? People you love or people that you probably shouldn't be talking to. Nobody wanted anything to do with me. My mother, my four sisters, nobody. You know like what's I a, had. Go ahead. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, just the one thing that I hear, like, you know, the pilot light is anybody that is so freaked out about stopping, you know, you, you go through the detox, which I'm sure was hell on earth. You come out to the other side and you can start to kind of see. A little bit, yeah. like the yeah. pilot light starts to flicker. So then you do have that ability to be like, fuck, this is it for me. You know, how bad do I, you, like you said, how bad do I want my life to get? Uh, and, yeah. and, and some, that, that's what I needed. I needed to go to a place where I was just separated from, from all the drugs and alcohol. So you kind of wake up, you're just kind of like, after you go through the detox and you're like, all right, like, this is kind of like all I have here. Yep. Um, or else I'm just totally fucked. My life is, is a train wreck. Yeah. So that's, it's cool to hear that, right? Even as dark as it gets, the separation from it, you can start to think somewhat clearly and start to make decent decisions. Like you, like that's huge. You know, what am I going to get high in a fucking shelter? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, but that was an option. But then I was thinking if I get thrown out of this fucking place, now I'm hundred percent on the street. Like I'm begging to get into a shelter. And then I'm going to get high and get kicked out and be on the streets. Like, what am, what am I doing? When I'm, I had to get to that point. Like, all right, what do you really want in your life? I was 35 years old, college educated, 
pharmaceutical sales rep, medical sales rep. I had it all. Except I just didn't, you know, after my intervention, I didn't listen and take direction to all the stuff that guys were telling me back in the day. Like go to meetings, get a commitment, get a sponsor, work the steps. Like oh, I didn't pay attention to any of that shit. None of it. And that's why I try to have a lot of patience with guys now that I'm friends with that keep going in and out. I'm like, hey, man, I don't know what to tell you. And they're like, you mad at me? I'm like, no, I'm not mad at you. You're an alky. You're doing what we do. You're going and getting loaded. I said, I didn't pay attention. I had to be beaten down by drugs and alcohol. Right? There, there are three things in my life, and I say this all the time, that are undefeated. Father time. Father time is always undefeated. The 1972 Miami Dolphins, they're undefeated. <laughs> <laughs> and drugs and alcohol. Right? Those are the three things in my life that are undefeated. Oh, I love it. Uh, so, so after you get out of this, uh, this, this place with uh, 59 guys, where, where do you go? Well, I got thrown up. I got thrown up because I wouldn't rat on somebody. And, uh, you know, that was a scary point because I was waiting to get into a program outside of Boston. And, you know, when it's cold, beds don't open up. Right. There are a lot of people that would just stay and do the deal until the weather gets warmer and then they can take off and do what they have to do. And, and because I wouldn't rat on the kid, they threw me out. So now here I am with 38 days sober and my sister Helen picks me up and she just starts screaming at me. Doesn't believe it. Yeah. Doesn't know why she doesn't understand that mentality. Like, yeah, I was college educated, but I also not a dummy when it comes to the streets, you don't, there are certain things you don't do. And, um, yeah, so then I was about ready to go to Florida. My buddy had a place for me. He had a, he had a shitty little job working at Vaughn's bagging groceries. Uh, he had meetings lined up for me. And then all of a sudden, my four sisters and my two brother-in-laws said, you're not going to Florida. We're putting you on a plane to California, and we're going to keep an eye on you. And that's April 21st, 2000. I still have my plane ticket. I still have a paper ticket that now is in a frame from U.S. Airways <laughs> through Philadelphia that brought me to California. And that day, like, changed my life. I had 40 days. I lived in the valley, and my sister in the valley, just the way God works. My nephew played baseball. One of his teammates' dad is sober. And he said to my sister, if you get your brother out here, I'll make sure we take care of him and take him to meetings. And no shit. Did he ever? Wow. So you're, 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 I've had so much fucking help in this journey. Pete, it's bananas. Yeah. Well, and that's why well, you give it away to keep it. You know, that's, and that's, you know, you, what you do today, um, is an example of kind of what this whole thing's about. You know, like you, you kind of, first of all, it's, I, I'm going to be fulfilled and living a good life if I'm helping others. Right. But I, I wouldn't yeah. be here if people didn't have incredible love, patience, and tolerance with me. And, and, you know, those, you, those are just the people in recovery. I needed people in yep. my life to tell me to fuck off. Um, yep. You know, and that's, it was funny, right? Like, like the people that love me finally, like your mom were like, it's enough already. But the people yep. in, in, in recovery were always like, dude, just keep coming. Nobody ever fucking judged me. Nobody ever, like you said, you can't get thrown out of, uh, at a, uh, you can get thrown out of a meeting, but you can come back. <laughs> yep. You can uh, come back. Yeah. So you go. So how does your life start to transform? Hold on. Question for you. Yeah, Question for you. Yeah. You're over ten years. Uh huh. Do you ever just stop, look around, and being like, 
how the fuck did I end up here? <laughs> Dude, I did it. I did it Sunday night at that concert. I literally, I looked around at my, you know, both my brothers are sober. My niece was there. Um, my sister-in-law. And it's just like, I'm looking around at this, you know, huge crowd. I'm like almost euphoric with good feeling. And I was just like fucking gratitude. Every usually, right. If I'm somewhere on the beam, every time something really good happens, I'll, I'll do that. Like, cause my whole life is about being sober. Like if I don't get sober, I'm not able to walk out to my car after this and put the, you, I don't have a car. You, you know what I mean? Like I, I remember selling somebody else's transistor radio so I could get high, you know, like it, just, I don't have a transistor radio, dude. You know, it was like a boom box. Transistors a little, that's maybe exaggerating, but you, you get the, you get the story. So yeah, I, I stop sometimes. How about you? I mean, wh- how often do you do that? All the time. Now, all the time. And I remember when I was fairly newly sober and, Look, I, I had a benefit of living with family for three and a half years of my journey. My first three and a half years, I lived with my one sister, her husband at the time, and my niece and nephew. Love and support and safety. Then I moved to this part of California where I met your brother with another sister, my brother-in-law, two, ne- two nephews and a niece. Love and support and family. Like, I'm, I'm 100% one of the lucky ones because once I started doing what I was supposed to do, my sisters just loved, I had structure my first year and a half with my sister in the Valley. And then I came here and my sister and my brother-in-law who I've known since I was 16, they just let me be me and let me go learn and get out there and take, get well jobs and figure it out and then get another better, get well job and figure it out. And then I moved into my place in Manhattan beach. And the sunsets out in Southern California are bananas. And the first time I had that moment, like, how did you get here? Was looking at the cotton candy sky and just thinking, man, Michael, how did you get here? And it was so reversed to when I walked into that shelter going, how the fuck did you get here? And that was my first moment of, oh, I know how I got here with this sunset. I got sober. I found a higher power. I worked the steps and I helped Elkies. And then shit just happens. And my next beautiful moment of how did I get here is my now fiance. She took me traveling to Santorini. And we had this hot tub built in the cliffs, right? Huh. And she was, she was setting up the camera and I was just taking it all in. And she she came around the hot tub and she looked at me and I had a, like this tear coming down and she said, are you okay? And I'm like, babe, how did I get here? Huh. Unbelievable. Like, how did I find somebody that loves and supports me for me? With everything that I've gone through in my journey, how did I find someone that loves and supports me, that pushes me, that encourages me, that, you know, accepts everything and learned, she learned all about what it's like to be sober because she had no idea. Yeah. And then she's the one that her and my buddy Nate T 
pushed me into going back to school and get out of sales and follow my passion. And, you know, three years ago, that's, that's how everything just turned to what I do professionally. So Nate was kind of the, the guy that you mentioned, uh, with Nate five days, guy. Nate is the yeah, guy. with and five days, and he, he 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 saw something in you, right? Like, hey, you can relate to 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 my kind. You you you're you're the guy that needs to deliver this message to people. Like I've always, like I said, I've always been around pro guys, and Nate would bring me to wherever he would go. And I remember I was in Canada, and I was he would just bring me to the rink every day, and I would just sit there and have breakfast with the team and it starts off with who's that <laughs> like oh, that's, that's just sully and i joke about it now because that that's just sully and then they figure out why i'm there and they don't have to worry they just i'm just sully being around and then the trust happens pete and then i've had guys come up to be like hey man so and so told me this is your role this is what you do. And I'm like, ah, well, yes. And don't really worry about that. And the conversations I've had because of that trust level is beautiful because a lot of pro guys, a lot of guys, I don't even say pro guys, everybody wants something. Yeah. And it's even more on that side. It's like, Hey, can you get me tickets? Or, Hey, can I get this? Or, Hey, can I get that? It's like, I mean, I don't want shit. I just saw the other night Derek Jeter's uh, on that the captain special, which is pretty good on ESPN. He said, "Every time somebody comes up to talk to me, I'm thinking, what are they going to ask me?" He said, "It's not a good way to be." He said, "But that is literally what I'm thinking." He's on guard. He said, "I'm always on guard." Yep. Yeah. And it's just like you know, to be around that world, and I, I tie it all back to earlier in this conversation, like playing catch with Steve Grogan. That was common when I was a kid. Yeah. Or like trying to intercept the pass at the Super Bowl during their practice between Steve Grogan and Steve Nelson. Some photographer took a photo and blew it up. And my mother has it autographed from Steve Nelson. Like, what the hell is that as a 14-year-old, 13-year-old? Well, I'll tell you, let, let me tell you something. And I have a theory on this. This is this is aside from sobriety. This is just one of my stupid theories. But it's 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 based on some history. If you look at guys, um, Steph Curry is a good example. Clay Thompson's a good example. Pat Mahomes, his dad played pro baseball. A lot of the best athletes, guys who may not look like, um, you know, they should be the most accomplished athletes. They grew up around the game. They know how to navigate the the locker rooms. The arenas don't freak them out. You know, like like all the attention. And and I think there's something to be said for that that level of comfort and that familiarity that, you know, it's, it's a unique quality that it seems like you were able to develop when you were, when you were real young and also too, dude, you're sober. So you're a cool guy, you know, like that can go, that can go one of two ways. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, you don't even need to comment on this, but I always think of Jimmy bus. I don't even know if he's on drugs or whatever, but I know, um, some of the bus guys were, were not the best thing for the Lakers. You know, it's clear that some stuff went sideways. So it's just interesting. Um, that you have that experience. And it is kind of like a, it's, it's a superpower in a way. It, it, thank you for all those compliments. Yeah. And combined with sobriety, I would imagine that it really is a, a, a beautiful asset. Pete, if I would have said, if you and I had this conversation and you were sitting next to me in that shelter, 
as new Sully, newly sober Sully and newly sober Pete. And if I were to sit down now with 13 plus years of sobriety and I would have told the two of you, all right, Pete, this is where your life's going to go and you're going to experience all these beautiful things. Sully, this is where your life's going to go and you're going to experience all these beautiful things. Newly sober me would have stood up and punched me, current me, right in the face and say, why are you fucking lying to me? Oh, yeah. There's no way my life is going to be that good. Why are you lying to me? Because I can't believe it myself. Like, I was just with a friend of mine, and we were with, uh, we traveled with Real Madrid. I don't even like soccer. And I'm like, I'm sitting on the Real Madrid plane. Okay. This is a great experience. <laughs> and it's just another one where, like, the guy took us on the field, and it, it was at the Oracle Park where the Giants play. I'd never been to the stadium, that park. And I'm on, the, I'm on the pitch, and I'm like, man, this is pretty bananas. I don't know shit about soccer, but there are a lot of people that would love to be down here. Well, you know it's on and the I'm pitch, just, so that's, you got, you got a lot I'm of just, people. Be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just walking around like it's common because, the way my life has gone, it's just like you just said. It's just another beautiful experience, and I get to do all of it sober. Yeah, I mean, your life is literally beyond, you know, your wildest dreams, as, as you just said. What, what, else, what else do you do every day to stay sober? Because at the end of the day, you, you have a lot going on. You know, you're about to get married, right? Like, you know, yep. you, you clearly are involved in – I don't know. Like, uh, it's a beautiful thing what you're able to do, but there's got to be some tense moments there. I mean, if you ever see Ray Donovan, it ain't a walk in the park. Um, so wh- how do you handle that? And every day, how do you stay spiritually fit? Um, it's pretty, I, I always say when I get away from basics, I have to get back to them. So I try not to get too far away. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not walking to Catalina. I'm not that spiritually fit, but you know, it's, you know, I was, very blessed to have guys, legit, old school, structured, solution-based AA. Don't drink, go to a meeting, ask for help. So for me, it's like I make my bed every day. Every day I make my bed. And I was taught, because if I don't do anything all day, at least I made my bed. Okay? Make my bed, brush my teeth, say my prayers, get quiet for, I'd love to say I get quiet for five minutes. Maybe it's max of two. Yeah. Depending on where I am, if I'm here in Hermosa, go upstairs, open the sliders, check out this insane view. If I'm in Vegas, go outside, check out the beautiful view we have there. Um, Always on the phone, whether I'm working or whether I'm just staying connected with sober guys. Go to, uh, with, with Zoom, I have a consistent Monday, Friday, 5.30, West Coast time that we decided to keep a while ago because we've had guys come in when the pandemic started that now have over two and a half years, two years sober, which constantly they keep bringing new guys, which I love. So it's like that vibe. Yeah. And then when I'm back here, when I'm in, when I'm in Hermosa, I forgot how busy my routine is. You know, walk down, get something to eat, work out. I try to work out three, four times a week just for my head. Um, go to a meeting in person once a week, maybe. Go see friends, have dinner. Watch a lot of sports. I hate this time of year because there's not really anything on besides yeah. baseball. And then, you know, here's I want to tell you, 
something that I, I take for granted, Pete, is, and it was last week, Music Nate called. Everyone in my life, by the way, has nicknames. Music Nate, Nate is the guy who's been on this podcast, who, by the way, you treat, my brother Michael, I talked to you today real quick, and he said, man, because I'm the youngest of, of, of my lot, so I get abused, and I was getting abused all, all week, and it was fine, you know, um, but he said, man, you, you should have stuck around, Nate really could have taken the pressure off you, you should have heard Kevin and Sully just breaking his balls, I was like, oh, that's great, because Nate is, I, he's just a lovable guy, and you know, I, I know how he handles that. And I know with I'm you kidding. guys, especially you, Sully, that's your love language, you know? That's it. If I don't bust your balls, I don't like you. Mm-hmm. And so Music Nate called me last week, and I had my buddy in the car. And I introduced my buddy to Music Nate, and the first thing my buddy said was, oh, I want a nickname like Music Nate. And we're just having a conversation. Nate, myself, and Jay and Nate were going back and forth a little bit. And we hung up the phone, and my buddy Jay goes, man, I wish I had a phone call like that. I said, what do you mean? He goes, he was just calling just to see how you were doing and checking in. I'm like, yeah. He goes, I don't have those. He's like, every time I get a phone call or a text message, somebody wants something. And Pete, at that moment, I never realized how great my friends are. Because I just that's just the world I run in. Yeah. But he doesn't, like, I forget that a lot of people don't have what I have. And that's just friends calling to say, hey, man, how's your day going? Oh, what are you doing? Hey, this is what I'm going to do. What are you up to? Hey, you want to grab something? Okay, if we can, great. Hey, man, I love you. Bye. Like, I forget that not everybody has that on their day-to-day basis. And that's that's basically my day. That's what I try to – I try to keep it really simple. Don't drink. Go to a meeting. Ask for help. I, a couple, one more thing, one or two more things before I let you get out of here. You mentioned Vegas. So do you have a place in Vegas and, and what's the sobriety like out there? Like what's, you know, a lot of people, if somebody's listening to this and they're new, they're like, fuck Vegas sobriety it just doesn't mix. I mean, I've been to, to meetings out there, but it sounds like you've probably got a foothold in that area. What, what is that experience like? So everything that people are picturing in Las Vegas, when I mention Las Vegas, go 180 degrees the other way. <laughs> I live in the, I live in the suburbs. We live in a house. It's quiet. There's no traffic. There's no taxes. But, <laughs> but I found a core group of guys called the cartel that reminded me of the guys that I used to go to meetings with in the Valley, the guys I currently go to meetings with in the South Bay or in Beverly Hills. They're the exact same structured, solution-based, help a new guy core group of guys. I go to the, the cartel meeting Monday through Friday at twelve fifteen to one o'clock. Where is that? And what I what I what what happened for me, Pete, is when I moved to Vegas and I had just had my shoulder, my bicep, my labrum and my rotator cuff operated on, no drugs, no script. I had a nerve block for four days to get me through the worst part of the pain. That I didn't go to me- in person meetings. I was just living on Zoom and it was me and my fiance and the dogs. And that's all I knew basically in Las Vegas until I called around and I had a couple of friends saying, Hey, why don't you go check out the cartel? It's three miles from your house. So when I went to the cartel and I started hanging out, I found guys that like to do the same shit I like to do. I found a guy that had season tickets for the night. I bought eight games from him. I saw another guy that I got to know. He had season tickets for the nights. He used to take me to the games all the time. 
so all it was was me getting out of myself and getting back to my core group, finding guys, go to meetings, help a new guy. And then, okay, now I got my AA dialed in. What am I going to do for fun? Yeah. And I need, I need to go to live hockey games. It's just, that's just the world I'm in. But it's, but it's, even, it's, even like you, this big tough guy with, with a bunch <laughs> of time, you know, with you're in love, you got the dog, but you still got to get up and do shit that might be uncomfortable, right? You still got to get up and go to a new meeting, go to a new place, meet new guys. Um, you know and, why, Pete? Why? Do you know why I do it? Because I don't want to end up in that homeless shelter that you brought me back to in the middle of this conversation. I never forget that feeling. I never forget the look on my mother's eyes when she dropped me off her baby boy at 35 years old opens the trunk of her car and lets me grab two trash bags of my whole life to walk in those doors. That's why I do what I do. And I, you know, nothing, nothing comes above my sobriety. Don't care what it is. I've had to cancel plans to go help a new guy. I've had to cancel dinners with new guys to go help a new guy. Like nothing comes above my sobriety. I don't care what it is. Last, I never want to go back to that moment. Last question: Who's who's your favorite Patriot of all time? What what, what when the Sullivans oh, bro, were, were running what, stuff? Really? Come yeah. on. TFD. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. We're going. I want to go back to the '80s. That's too easy. Like when you know around the eight, <laughs> Tom eighty-five. Fucking, Tom fucking Brady. Come on. <laughs> it's um, too easy. Who? When I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. When I was a kid, who was my? I would say Irving Fryer. And Irving Fryer got sober, right? Yeah, he also got himself in some trouble. Yeah, okay, that's right. He did get himself in some trouble. Yeah, yeah um, but when I was a kid, Irving was great. He used to joke around with my dad all the time. Anything else you want to leave people with? This has been be. It's been beyond awesome, man. I'm so happy we did this. First of all, to end this, it's been an honor that you even asked me to do this. Right. And I tried not to figure out what you do until your brother was telling me, yeah, he's like, and I knew Dan O'Toole had done the podcast, obviously through Nate Amore. He's like, yeah, Ryan did it too. And I was like, well, what? So just the fact that you asked me to do this, thank you for that. Absolutely. What do I want someone to take from this? (sighs) Don't give up on yourself because what I found is I'm not nearly that person that I was 13 years ago. Like there are people that I, when I meet and they, they try to explain this, that, and the other thing, I always say to them, I only know this version of you. Like I only know this version of your brother, Kevin, the sober version. I don't know all the other shit. And I want people just that are listening that there is help out there. There's a lot of love out there and no matter how dark it gets is always, you mentioned it. There's that little pilot light that's burning inside. Just try just to stay sober today and worry about tomorrow when we wake up. Sully, that's unbelievable, man. I, I can't thank you enough for the time, brother. You're the best dude. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. This is going to be uh thank you, man. Yeah, dude, thank you so much. We'll be in touch. I think we might want, I might want to do this again with you. I mean, come on, it's too good. Buddy, it was an absolute honor. I mean, thank you so much for having me and just thinking that, you know, just to have this conversation.
Yeah, it's like uh, I I couldn't. I have a noon meeting that I go to, but I was like, let me work out before, um, and then I'll get with Sully. And man, this was like, yeah, this this put me into the fourth dimension. So I appreciate it, brother. You're the best, Pete. Thanks, pal. All right, Sully. Later, man. Thanks so much for listening to the payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, and of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.